Hello and welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today, my guest is Blaine Reininger, and his guest is James Nice. Oh, hey Blaine, how you doing? How are you? Doing? Your your name is Jack. Yes, correct. Where are you? Italy. You're in Italy. Yeah. Oh, I found somehow you were in the U.S. I'm I'm English originally, but I've been in Italy for ten years now. And uh, yeah, where are you? About an hour and a half south of Napoli in the Cilento area. It's, uh, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, the south. I don't know the south so well. I can only know Firenze, and I know one on the other. Ah, you've been everywhere. Rome, I always played everywhere, but I never only I really hung out any length of time in, in uh, Emilia Romagna, actually. Just about anywhere else. So here we are. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. It's really an honor. Well, uh, you know, it's it's a little different than the usual stuff. I yeah. Agree. Yeah, I mean, you've done, you've done just about everything. So, but that's a praise <laughs> indeed to something different. Yeah, that's like, I guess that's the theme of you. That could be your motto, no? Yeah, so Ellen, something different. Ellen gone like ski jumping on ayahuasca, you know, or hang <laughs> gliding with the AK forty-seven or anything like that. So, haven't done everything. Still a few, still a few on the bucket list. A few things lay on my bucket list, yeah. Ayahuasca hang gliding. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Athens, yeah? Yes, I am. Okay. I just had an earthquake this morning. Oh, wow. A little tiny one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how's Athens at the moment? How's it? How uh, things you know, Athens is, is in an interesting state. I mean, Athens is a fair... It's really full of tourists anymore. It's very, it's kind of crowded with tourists mm. here. But but you know, I don't think I don't think it's as bad as some people do. Mm. I did as much as like my wife. My wife doesn't like it. Yeah, you know, Athens. It's it's fairly. Compared to how it was, you know, say ten years ago, it's a lot better. Than yeah, yeah, I was there about ten years ago, and it was pretty crazy. It was uh... yeah, it's pretty grim. Well, in like two thousand nine, you know, when the crisis really, really, yeah, hit, they were burning down whole city blocks and things. You know, yeah. it, was, it was a mess. Fire bombing theater, and you know, mm. it was a fucking mess. And you know, just that going shopping for amusement is, is is a lot more interesting than it used to be. I mean, for a while there, the the shops were looking kind of you know, Soviet, mm. had like no inventory, you know, so it was not very entertaining. But now, you know, it's better. Yeah. Okay. And are you in Italy sometime as well, or are you also are you just permanently in Athens? Well, I mean, I I, I did a, a little tour of Italy in October, and I'm going to do uh, another couple of gigs. Like, yeah, I'm going to play in Bologna anyway uh, next month. Oh yeah. 
So, yeah, you know, I still have, I have friends in Italy and I have interests there. I mean, my latest album came out with an Italian label, you know, label with Piacenza. So. And with this band, 24 Hours, you've been collaborating as well, this uh, psychedelic progressive band. Who's that? 24 Hours. So. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I know them. Uh, oh, it's on your Wikipedia page. It can't be trusted, maybe. I don't know who that might be. I mean, I get a lot of like online sessions. Hmm. Your old people come and they want me to play violin on this project and that. Ah, right. <laughs> I don't always remember. It's hard to remember what you've been. I, I don't always remember who they are. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like two hours of my life at night. I, I, ah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do something online. I play violin solo on a couple tracks or maybe sing. Ah, okay. And, you know, I don't remember. Yeah, but, yeah. A gun for hire. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I mean, that's mm. part of my job, you know, I'm a professional musician. Yeah. You know, not anybody's willing to pay me. I need, you know, I need money. I yeah, need, sure. You know. Yeah. Especially, you know, these days where, you know, sales have gone down, your money from streaming you know, is, is, is not very much at all. So, yeah, well, you know, well, that's an interesting, it's interesting we're going to talk to James. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a record company. Right, he is yeah. my record company. He's been my record company for, for as long as I, for many, many years, really. Um, and he is, I don't know if you know anything about him. You said you were going to, he wanted to know some things about James. Yeah, because he's an interesting character. Now he's, uh, he's James Haywood is his, his, uh, pen name. He's also a, a very successful yeah, writer as well. That's right. Yes. And he also has a record company, manages the record company he used to work for, the, uh, Le Discs. The, well, he, he basically, you know, he, he basically took over the brand as it were. I mean, okay. The brand was 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 just, and some of the artists, of course, mm -hmm. like me and Anna Domino and you know Vinnie Riley, uh, and some other people, various other people. I, yeah, I guess, cult artists. Yeah, Isabel and Taylor, these other people from Crepuscule. You know, he he re-released their their back catalogs, but they, I mean he had a label for for some years before that called Leton Modern. That he ran it, he ran it as as kind of a hobby in a way. I mean, he he released things like you know piano music by Eric Satie and kind of kind of obscure things. And then you know, then the the, the tempo of the record company kind of picked up, and he ended up. I mean, he can tell you better than I. But he ended up kind of picking up the slack from from factory, you know, and he ended up kind of representing sites, uh, you know, some of the lesser known acts from factory. Mm. So, mm. That's the factory acts. records from Manchester, yeah. Yes, other acts that were not the order, you know. Yeah. In other words, 
everybody else that wasn't New Order. And so he inherited <laughs> that because, you know, there was a connection between factory and crepuscule in Belgium. You know, I mean, uh, the East of Crepuscule was, was the European, you know, licensee or the European face of factory records. And so there was considerable kind of uh, considerable communication between them and Brussels. You know? And at that point, a lot of musicians were coming to Brussels to record because there were, there were you know, uh, state-of-the-art recording studios available and engineers and musicians and everything else were a lot less money than uh, it cost to work in England. And of course, it may have meant a trip to, you know, Europe, I mean, sort of, English musicians would come hang around and meet Belgian women and drink Belgian beer and you know, be somewhere besides England. So there was a lot of that. So, I mean, that's when uh, James James went to work for Crepuscule when I was, you know, I was signed as a, an artist at Crepuscule. And he was working there. I don't exactly remember when he started. Though. We became friends, you know. And he would he would come over to our house for dinner. I mean, he was he was just out of university. He was a young man. He, my wife would cook for him, and he would come hang around, watch television with us in our house. So you were there at that time. That was, must have been a incredibly stimulating time. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to talk to James about primarily, yeah. about the ancient times in Brussels. I mean, it was, a, it was an interesting time. You know, there, was, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. I mean, it was not only, I, I find out later, some of the other stuff that was going on. I mean, there was, there was our whole scene, you know, there was the, the crepuscule scene and the people working there and the factory people coming over. And there was a venue called Le Clauca, where, where like everybody played, you know, to see the moon. We played there, that's how we came to know these people. You know, and in Bauhaus and the Psych Note Furs and all of these English bands came over, they would play there. And these people at Crepuscule, I mean, they were intimately connected to that venue. And so there was a lot of that going on. But I also know there, there was a lot of other things going on that were not part of our scene. I mean, you know, Marvin Gaye had recorded in Ostend, his last record, I suppose, with Belgian engineers. I mean, I, I recorded in that same studio at one point later. And I don't know, the guys that kind of invented Euro disco, they were, there were Belgians involved in a lot of that. You know, you have these guys named Telex that were, you know, a Belgian band. They had, you know, they had, we worked with them because they had uh, gear that we didn't have access to. I mean, they had samplers. They had samplers in you know, 1983, whenever that was, 82, 83. We used, we used their samplers to record a, 
Valley from Maurice Major, we sampled these bits of Greta Garbo's voice. So there was, there was a lot of other stuff going on in Belgium somehow at that, at that time. I had a good conversation with uh, Elliot Murphy. He's a, an American musician. He moved to Paris and it's had his second career there, took off again. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. These are American artists who come up who feel like yourself, who have more, they feel more at home in Europe than they do back there. Yeah, or right. it also has to do with a get or at least until recently, or maybe not so much now, that you, you got more respect than you ever would in the United States. And it's the same thing that happened with the old Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they wouldn't let Miles Davis in the front door in some of the clubs in America. And he came here and he said, Oh, le grand génial. Dieu c'est génial, Miles, yes, you know, I treat him like a genius. And they just treat him like, you know, the help. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that was true for us when we got a certain amount of that. I mean, we were playing in bars in America. We were part of the, the, the scene in New York in the late 70s, you know, with a lot of people that became millionaires besides us, you know, like Basquiat and these, these, these other people, you know, floating around in that scene as were we at the time but you know we were playing in the end i mean a lot of the bars in new york at the time were just scum holes i mean they were just <laughs> a basement somewhere and you didn't notice because you're so drunk or so <laughs> you know you thought you're having a good time it's so dark in there you couldn't see that it was just a, a sewer in there, you know, <laughs> this fucking filthy the mud club with just a, a dive, you know, and, and, and CBGBs and Max's Kansas City smelled like like all the pee in the world had been deposited <laughs> there. It's amazing. Rock and roll pee, you know. And so we came to Europe and and suddenly we're we're working with the Maison de la Culture and we're you know, we're doing, we're commissioned to do ballet from a Maurice Béjar, and it's just another old world, you know, different story entirely. Also, we played our share of scum holes, too. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why Miles Davis ever went back. At least you, yeah. Well, you know, this is interesting. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna all, you know, let's tell everything before James even comes. Yeah, off safe, keep your powder dry. Yeah, you know, but I can understand. I mean, it, this is something I've had to deal with. Is it's like uh, homesickness or nostalgia or you know, oh. feeling like you're a fish out of water. Or a man without country, then you know, and then you realize, you know, on the surface, you think, well, it's all the Western world. It's all, you know, they all they have all the same food and they watch the same television shows. Or, you know, but there are there are big differences in the culture. You know, like, hmm. Come somewhere like Greece, I find out about it all the time. 
about my cultural assumptions. And of course, it's good for me as a human that I can't make these assumptions, these kind of imperialist assumptions about my culture, that my culture is superior, you know, especially English people as well, you know, had that notion they go live among some other people and they consider themselves superior to all that. Yeah, you learn. You learn a lot that people have other ideas about how things should be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a huge education. I left England when I was 20. I lived in, in, uh, in Holland for 10 years and then now I've been in Italy for 10 years and I don't, I don't feel homesick really for England or... Um, I really like the Europe, the the life in mainland Europe. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I like to go to England now and again, but uh, England is England is rough. England is yeah. cruel. Yes, England is cruel. It's like America, you know. Mm, yeah, if you don't have money, I mean, you're just fucked. There's nowhere for you to be. You know, your options are very later. You can't do anything. You can't you know, rent a house. You can't live. You yeah. can't afford food. And you can't pay your bills. I mean, you can you can more or less do that in Europe. I mean, I've been able to do these things. Mm -hmm. I would never be able to do that in England, and I I doubt that I'd be able to do these things in America either. Not and and being a musician, you know, not have that as my only job. Yeah. Yeah, I know I live in Italy for a fraction of the cost I would in northern Europe. You know, you can you grow your own vegetables. Um well yeah, you're in the south. I mean, that must be another whole story. Yeah, it's really you know, we we don't have a mortgage. We because uh my girlfriend's an architect and the family owned the land, so and she she built it with uh, you know, her connections. So yeah, it's really just yeah, completely. Do you, you you have a source of income from from elsewhere? And... Yeah, I do some writing as well, some freelance writing and translation, and uh, you need to, you know, just because. Of course, I mean, you're not going to get a job. I mean, it's 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 great. I can do it because there's no cost to releasing music now. You can you can distribute for free. If I had to press, if I had to press CDs or vinyl for every every week, forget about it. But this way. You know, we can release music, send it to the other side of the world for free, mm. basically. And okay, you don't get make any money from it, just a handful of cents. But well, the, the idea of eating some kind of living from from music online—I mean, it's been very important to me. I mean, I don't make massive amounts of money, but you know, I get money from Patreon every month. Right, and it's you know it's 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 not massive, but you know and I use that money to to buy things, you know, to buy food, you know, to buy mm. medicine, and to I mean it's like having a pension which I don't have, and it's it spurs my creativity. I mean, part of my Patreon, my the brain running her promise is that I will provide three unreleased songs a month to my Patreon patrons, mm. which, you know, has been an immense uh, 
stimulus to my creativity. And I okay. have not a huge mass of songs that have not been released. I mean, I can, you know, that's why the last CD I released with James or the last three CDs I released with James were double CDs, you know. Wow. The last CD, CD I did with him had 28 tracks on it. And that was after I eliminated more than half. You know, I initially had to sort through like 60 to get those 28. Mm. Wow, you're so productive. Also, your website, I was I was delving deep into that. That's a, that's a magnum opus. Yeah, that's a that's a a labor unto itself. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I I started I started it before there was you know social media, before there was any, and I never had the idea that anybody ever saw it at all. But you know, I I made I started doing a blog before they call it blog. I started because I've always kept a journal and I don't do so much anymore. But you know, I would upload whole whole journal pages that were written in HTML, you know, and post them to my website. And then I had to write the, the code for the for the blog, you know, right? I, I, there was was not automatic. I had I had the engineer myself, you know, and and. Of course, as as time has gone by, I have a wider audience on social media, and so the website has kind of faded in its importance in my life. I mean, I, I tried to tried to do some things on the website just to keep it going, even when I'm not posting regularly. I have like these RSS feeds that that post to website pages i also maintain the tuxedo moon website you know, and i have to, to find a way to, you know, to keep the fresh content without necessarily having the time to go there all the time you know it needs to be re i mean it's already kind of it needs to be upgraded i think yeah yeah it's all, all of my websites are just kind of basic html I taught myself HTML. I mean, I I got a, I got an internet capable computer for the first time in 1998. It was a Pentium processor, and I found a tutorial online that showed you how to post a picture of a cat, <laughs> how to make a web page. That, yeah, you know, do that. Post a picture of a cat, and so I saw that web. I learned how to do that, and then when I was yeah, set myself loose, yeah, you just like you just got this stream of creativity coming out through you, and I just you just I guess you keep need to find an outlet all the time. I guess that's true. Yeah. I guess that's true. I, you know, I sometimes I don't realize it. It's not that way for everybody. No, no. I right, sometimes think, no, that's just like everybody. It's not necessarily true. No. Yeah, it really comes and goes for me. You know, I do, you know, when I have to I get too wrapped up in day to day. But, uh, you yeah, know, I really, 
admire someone like yourself who's had this the creative stamina to do i mean you formed tuxedo moon in 1977 yeah that's the year i was born wow. um, yeah and you've been going all this time consistently so it's a big respect for you well thank you i mean it's it has not always been the easiest uh, easiest path i mean that's what i tell young people and say you know they want to, want to pursue a career in music and i said you better you better be sure i said don't do it unless it's <laughs> like you have to because mm. you're not going to you might you might you might be you know Lady gaga or or you know saint vincent or i don't know somebody that they get some attention and make some money but the odds are you won't be the odds are you won't even be touching moon i mean that we were we were lucky that we were in the right place at the right time. I mean, we were playing gigs in San Francisco just when the zeitgeist was was ready for what we were preaching. Yeah. And we got picked up and there were plenty of bands that didn't yeah, yeah. come out of that scene. Not that we had this massive success, but we've had a kind of a sustaining real motion momentum that sustained us for more almost 50 years one way or another now me and steven really i mean steven's on the other side of the world steven brown he's in kind of an analogous situation in mine i mean he lives in mexico and, and he gets a lot of the same kind of work that i do he works he will like write theater music or dance Things like that, or he will do shows or you know, concerts with his local boys. It's a similar situation. Are you still working together? Are you still producing? Not really. I mean, the last thing we did together has been now it's been like uh, eight years ago. I, mean, I went to I went to Mexico in two thousand fourteen. And we recorded some new music. We released a CD and all kind of violin and piano thing. That's the last time I worked with him, really. I mean, we did some Tuxedo Moon. You know, we kept doing Tuxedo Moon until Peter died. And that was, that was pretty much it. That was, you know, really the literal. Yeah, you need the three of you to have the magic, yeah, to be there. Well, we needed Peter. I mean, Peter is like the bass player at Spinal Tap. Yeah. He was, he, <laughs> he, you know, he, he said, well, like a lot of people in bands, I mean, a lot of times you have two people that are at each other's throats all the time, and you have to have like a third person to, to you know, uh, blue, you know, to an album. Yeah, yeah. That was where Peter was. Yeah, for the stool to stand up, you need the three legs. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just working now. I just tried to stop. I was working on a new thing. 
you can't see it on my camera won't move I mean my gear is all here mm. my studio my guitar and my instruments here they're out mm. it's working I've been in the theater I've been working in the theaters for the last like five months and theater takes up a lot of your time takes up all your time you really can't do anything else and now I'm sort of back to normal. Now I'm back in a position where I can, can write every day. I can compose everything. So what's your next project? I have some shows. That's the next, you know, I have some shows in Greece. I have a show in Vienna. Again, at the end of the month, by next week, I go to Vienna in one month. Is it solo or with a band? I don't have a band per se. I mean, I have one other guy I work with. This guy, Giorgio Valentino, was a guitar player. And then I, I have a lot of my stuff. It's on my laptop. If I could afford a band, I would have a band. Yeah. No one pays enough money. And it, it, it comes down to, you know, another guy equals another hotel room and another plane ticket and another meal and another you know another mouse to feed and they people just won't pay me enough money now mm. to do that if i could travel with a band i i certainly would I, mean, I i far prefer to enjoy working with three recorded backups and things you know and i like to I mean, do as much as possible just live, it's, it's two guitar players, and they do a big section of the show where it's just two guitars and they sing. Mm. But and, and, I, mean, I worked with uh, I worked with uh, some local guys, some Greek musicians, a little while ago, a couple of years ago. And this guy was like, he's like a, a gunslinger, a real gunslinger, guitar player that I met. And then we got a bunch of other gunslingers. We got a bass player and a drummer. And we taught the guys, those guys, some of my songs. And, and yeah, it was great. It was great. <laughs> I had a good, fucking great time. And then I recently, I recently played with, with something like an orchestra. I mean, there was a thing that's called a song for Greece. That was uh, some of the the song I wrote for that is on my new album. They commissioned a bunch of local composers, musicians to write a song to commemorate the you know the 200th anniversary of the Greek independence, and I had like an orchestra backing me. As I wow. said, that was pretty great. There he is. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. Welcome to my world. We had, a, we had a little earthquake this morning. Oh dear! Everything all right? Everything still seems to be on the wall. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way I really knew it was happening. I saw one of the pictures on the living room wall was kind of hanging, kind of loose. It was not big. It was four point four, but it's you know eighty kilometers away. I mean, is that something you have on an annual basis, or is it once in a blue moon? Oh, it's it's. It's, it's like California in its way. I mean, we have you know, kind of little tremors, you know, now and again, it's an earthquake zone. 
here. So we've been talking already, you know, we probably covered some of the ground you wanted to cover. Yeah. Already. And is my my sound and vision, is that okay? I've sort of made an effort to arrange things so that I've got an okay <laughs> background that isn't just... Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, super. Good to meet you, Jack. Pleased to meet you too. Thanks, thanks for taking the time to chat. No, that's all right. Where are you? I'm in Italy. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. So you're midway between... I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the breaching, the, breaching the divide, yeah. You, <laughs> you, sound, you sound English to me. I am He's English. Busy. I'm... For originally from near Cambridge, Berris and Edmonds. Oh, I know Berry very well. I'm in the middle of Norfolk, so. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah, no, I was down there. I go down there probably once a month for work anyway. So um, if I was there last week. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so how long have you been in um, Italy? Oh, about 10 years now. Yeah, my girlfriend's Italian and brought me back. And yeah, I couldn't think of a good enough reason to leave, I guess. I guess that's the same reason the Blaine's in in Athens now, love, one, <laughs> one sort of another. Well, you know, the, thing, the funny thing about me is, I, I love, well, everything's funny about me. <laughs> Most of the expatriate types I meet around here did come here for love, right? They came mm. holiday and they fell in love. That's not my case at all. I came here for work. I'm one of the, I'm one of the rare, rare people that actually came to Greece because the job opportunities were greater than where I was at the time. So I came here for the sake of work and love came later. Uh, so. Well, I, I guess Blaine heartbreak came before love. Well, yeah, all of that. I mean, of course, you know, the grand, the grand tragedy of my life, you know, JJ died after we'd been here and first, uh, what, like four months, you know, and uh, it was kind of a mess for a long time. For I didn't remember that it was that soon after you went to Athens. I I just didn't realize it was it was so sudden after that. Was it anything to do with the sort of different altitude and the different air and things? Oh no, she had a she had a a heart condition that kind of just appeared on its own and they, they call it idiopathic and that just means we don't know what the hell it is or where it comes from or why but it was uh, was a the the pulmonary artery became you know enlarged and eventually that just killed her and it moved very quickly it's like a railroad train i mean it, it'll be a first appeared in like December of 97 and by July of 98 she was dead so it was very quick you know boom so there was all of that I mean it took me really quite a long time to get back into you know songwriting you know I, I didn't want to do any of that shit you know and it's only been like recently that I actually started writing songs again you know, songs with lyrics, you know, to be sung. But you've overcome adversity in the past before when it came to actually writing music. And this is a suspiciously smooth segue into an artifact <laughs> that I decided to bring along uh, to this uh, meeting today. So yes. it's on a coat hanger. And oh, I doubt if you recognize this. 
Or is that that coat you got for me? Does it still have the blood stains on it? Yeah, do you want to introduce what this jacket is, Blaine? Well, I mean, that's the jacket I was wearing the night I had my my accident in Amsterdam. I mean, I'd gone to Amsterdam to to play a solo show, you know, and well, it was a long fucking story. I mean, I had no money and they wouldn't give me any food, but they would give me whiskey, you know, and so I'm sitting there and drinking bourbon all day and I had nothing to eat. So we did the show and the show went off all right. And you know, I could, I could always perform drunk, you know? And so after the show, I had a little bit of money in like a shoulder bag and I was going to find a croquette, you know, Amsterdam, it was the, the light supply. I was going to find the automat there and just get a couple of croquettes and eat them. And I see some guy walking down the street and I say, Hey, how do I get to the automat? I want to get something to eat. He said, Oh, follow me. And then he grabbed my shoulder bag and this, this had all my painfully acquired, you know, wherever it was, 450 guilders or 750 maybe. And I said, you little motherfucker. <laughs> and I was drunk and it also me and Peter had just had some good time beating the hell out of some other guy. So I thought I'm going to cash his little fuck. I'm going to beat the hell out of him. And I think you better stop you little fucker. I'm chasing him. Whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm not watching where I'm going. He's just a little skinny junkie, you know, I suppose. And he threw my bag down in the street. He didn't want to tag over me. And that's the last thing I saw. I kind of momentum carried me out into the street. And I got hit by a car, evidently. And evidently that car ran over my right hand. And you know, I don't I don't know what I am trying to stop it. The car is being driven by a guy named Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. I woke up in the hospital, you know, in a hospital in Amsterdam. Of course, I was stoned out of my mind, so I was having a good time. But, but, and I was wearing that coat. And this coat, I think, this jacket began life as a, a bus driver's jacket in Leeds or something like that, bizarrely. it's It looks quite futuristic quite star trek but it's actually made by burton tailoring ah. <laughs> well that jacket is also given to me by michael nolte he was a promoter if you look closely above the burton maker's mark there's actually some dry blood I bet my blood is still there all right i wondered if you kept, <laughs> kept the blood stain you can clone me well, I, I I can't fit in that jacket, so there's no point in getting it. Well, I couldn't fit in there now either. I mean, I was pretty skinny in those days, you know. And then after that accident, that was the kind of inspiration, certainly for the title of your first solo album in 1982, which was called Broken Fingers, which had an X-ray of, of your broken hand on the cover. Absolutely. Well, that also, that also came because... While I was convalescing from the accident in, in Rotterdam, I was reading a, a novel novel by William Burroughs called Dead Fingers Talk. And and JJ saw me sitting there reading this with this contraption attached to my hand. I have like these little wires coming out with wine corks attached to them, keeping me from poking my eye out when I slept. 
She said, that's a hell of a book for you to be re reading with your fingers like that. Huh? Damn fingers talk. And so that the lyrics in the song say, you know, broken fingers talk. So I lifted part of the actual burrows. I was going to mention William S. Burroughs at some point in this conversation, but you've beaten me to the punch. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want do you want me to give you these questions or you did they just did they just elicit some some brainstorming you? I mean, come well, on. I suspect you sent you sent me some questions over and I've sort of thought about some answers. I, I, I don't know um how detailed you want me to be. Uh, I mean I think really probably this conversation is more about you, Blaine, than me, because you're infinitely more interesting than I am. <laughs> so by all means, ask, ask me those questions. Um, well, the, the first question I have here is, what made you decide to move to Brussels and what were you doing just before? Well, I was uh, I'm a little bit younger than you, Blaine. I'm still 27, haha. I was at university um, and I was living in Scotland. I was a big fan of Ledis du Crepuscule. Um, I was a sort of pseudo intellectual. I'd been turned on to that when I moved to Edinburgh. And I was really interested in Tuxedo Moon in particular. And so I'd sort of worship the band from afar, really. And while I was at university, I uh, had a record label called LTM. I did a couple of compilation albums, and on the first of those, there was a Tuxedo Moon song called Shell Dreams, um, and I came over to Brussels to get a copy of the master tape, and I think I stayed with Martin Yauerbaum, who was the, the manager of the group then, and then the next year, I did another compilation, and that had a Winston Tong track on, so I think I repeated the exercise. And I came over and I, I met you on one of those trips. I can't remember which. And I came around to your flat and met JJ as well. And a domino I met. Um, and I went up to Appledorn in Holland with Tuxedo Moon. This was during the time when you uh -huh. were in the band. And so these two trips, which were very, very short, an awful lot of incredibly exciting stuff seemed to happen so I decided in my third year at university that when I left I would move over to Brussels I fondly imagined it would be like going to Paris in the 1920s it was full of avant-garde artists it was going to be like Ernest Hemingway's Paris in the 20s and also I picked up the idea that it was very cheap to live there the rents were incredibly cheap and I think Nina Shaw who was the lighting person for Tuxedo Moon at the time she had this strange little attic apartment that was almost free there was barely any rent that she paid I don't think there was any running water or anything like that but that all just seemed incredibly romantic to me so I thought I'd go to Brussels for nine months or a year uh, and just soak it up um, I didn't have any firm plan and that's how I turned up in the summer of 1987 and I think you very kindly put me up stroke put up with me for two or three weeks until I found accommodation of my own ah well yeah I didn't remember the exact I don't remember exactly how, how you, you got assimilated into the board as it were 
I mean, I guess that was it then. If you were if you were going to a, a gig with us, you would have you would have been part of the, the horizon to me. Ah, you know, so here to tell jokes too, you know. <laughs> And 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 so I can see uh, how you end up being like assimilated. So that's it. I mean, you didn't end up with with Crepuscule until later on, and we didn't. It was it was very soon because I found that my money wasn't lasting as long as I thought it might. So fairly quickly, through a guy called Jonas who was working at Crepuscule, oh Jonas. Um, he um, he told me that the mail order was in a mess. So lots of people had sent money to the label to buy records and posters and things. And the label wasn't sending anybody any records and posters because there was no one to do it. So I think my first job was sorting out this mountain of backed up mail order and sending it out. And I met Michelle and, you know, he thought I would be useful. I guess not least because I spoke English. Um, so that was my foot in the door, just um, being a freelancer doing the mail order. But fairly soon, I, I'm i not going to say I went on the payroll at Crepuscule because it was all a little bit sketchy about the status of employment. But I worked there for about nine months full time. Um, and then after that, there, there was there was a bit of an argument as there tended to be at Crepuscule. And then I sort of was a someone that did projects with them rather than being in the office every day. Um, but it was a very exciting nine months. And I think one of the questions you asked was, what, would is, what was it like working with Michelle Duval, who was the, the main founder of Crepuscule? But before I answer that, I think you used to call him the kingfish, didn't you? I used to call him a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> that was maybe one of the kindest Things that I called him. He was, he is, you know, he still is. I don't know what he's like now. Uh, he, he was quite a character. I mean, he was very, he was, he was, he was very kind of a, a rascal, in my opinion. He was, he was like a Loki kind of figure, in the, you know. I mean, I don't think that's very fair. I mean, Michelle started the label along with a couple of other people. The label started in. 1980 is sort of an offshoot of well kind of related to factory records it was two labels factory benelux which was going to release factory records in benelux and then crepuscule was more an attempt to have a really cosmopolitan international arts label and almost an arts movement in brussels so he very much encouraged people to come to brussels from abroad and to collaborate with each other um and I think he was he was a really interesting catalyst, I would say. But I guess, like many other people, because he was a catalyst, my relationship with him at that time was quite explosive. And it certainly exploded after <laughs> after nine months. But I still communicate with him almost on a weekly basis. Um, we still do a few projects together. So I um I owe him. And I owe Crepuscule really pretty much all of my subsequent music career. I owe a lot of that to you as well, because you were a big supporter of mine when I was young. But really, the whole of my music career since the mid 80s has been based on um, that nine months I spent working at Crepuscule with Michelle. I learned a lot 
Um, so it was a real formative experience. Yeah, I mean, Michelle, me at one point, Michelle wanted me to be something like an analog of Vinnie Riley. I mean, the Tony Wilson, Tony Wilson kind of kept Vinnie Riley. He, he, Vinnie Riley had a, uh, he had a, what would you call it, a retainer, an honorarium. I mean, Tony Wilson paid his rent and his bills, and he didn't expect to make his money back off of uh, Vinnie's record sales. And so in that way, you know, Michel Duval thought, well, I'm going to be a patron to blame in that way. And, and well, he actually was for a while, but it didn't last longer than a few months, really, before he kind of spaced it out and went on to other things. But there for a while, he made me like the house producer at Crepuscule. And so there would be all these sessions going on. There was a little studio called uh, Little Big One, a recording studio somewhere there in Brussels. And various people would be there various times. For instance, he did a project called Moving Soundtracks. And he got all the people that were that were involved with his label at the time. And that was the, the Pale Fountains and Isabel Antenna and Wim Martins and me and Tuxedo Moon and the whole bunch of us, you know. And I was uh, I was in the studio for all of that, you know. And I, I may not have been entirely a producer, but I like played bass with Isabel Antenna and I, I played keyboards with Wim Burdens. And, oh. you know, I would sing with somebody else or I'd do my own thing. And I was doing that kind of stuff with, with all the Krebskill productions for, for a while, you know, for that some really, That was a really interesting album, Moving Soundtracks. It was a compilation that was people doing updates and versions of movie scores. So some of it was songs from films and some of it was instrumentals. And I still love the uh, the cover version you did of the Georges Delarue um, theme from Le Mepri Contender. Yeah, I've actually seen that movie and it bored the shit out of me. I couldn't stand it. But <laughs> oh my God, that's the only interesting thing about this movie is that song. Except, I, I, well, I, I I disagree, but I think that's I mean, me. That's my taste. I don't like French cinema anyway. But you, I mean, you did do some interesting projects as a producer, and I mean, I still have some of them on catalog. And one of those is the East and West mini album by Anna Domino, which is a really nice, very minimal um, album, and I think. At certain points over the years, Anna's sort of almost disowned it, but it's now her most popular record by a long chalk because it just captures a moment and an atmosphere. And you're the co-producer on that. And I know you tend to minimise this as well, but you also did some pretty important work with the Durutti column. Now, you did two albums with them. I mean, one was an album called Short Stories for Pauline, which has your um viola over quite a lot of it and then you were invited to manchester to record and be very prominent on their fourth album without mercy and you played with the group as well and i think you tend to think of that as just something you did for a few days but actually in out there in sort of record land and in the culture 
you're playing a violin and viola with a Durati column is quite a big thing. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard for me to, to, to know what impact my activities have in the world. I mean, I enjoyed that trip immensely. I mean, it was, you know, not exactly the, the utter peak of the Manchester scene, but I mean, the Hacienda was still running and Tony Wilson was still, you know, flitting around Manchester, you know, and I got to hang around with him for, for a few days, you know, and, and at one point, the, what you call the tailpiece gut on my viola broke. I mean, it's a little piece of gut, sheep gut that holds the tailpiece that holds the instrument together. It holds the strings to the body of the instrument and the tailpiece gut broke. And I said, Tony, you know, my tailpiece gut is broken. He said, oh, well, let's get in my car. Let's fix it. You know, come on, please, let's go. Let's go. Yes. Driving all over Manchester and trying to find a tailpiece gut with this guy. He had this, this uh, a saddlebag from a horse, from a post, you know, a postal horse. It had it like two big bags, a big strip of leather that's meant to go over the horse. And that was his bag. Then he goes, snap, flip this enormous thing over his shoulder and get in his car. Let's go. Let's go. You know, he, but he's a very intrepid guy. And the thing was, there was there was no kind of snobism about him. I mean, he was he was very kind of you know, down to earth guy. He didn't you didn't get the impression of this. This is a guy that made Joy Division. You know, I mean, this is this is the boss. This is the owner of Factory Records. He's you know a legend in his own time. He's just you know a guy. And he would be the one to drive me around looking to fix my viola, you know. And so I had a good time on that trip. Do you that think you had living in another country? Do you think that's a, a collaboration that you would have liked to have continued longer? Or for you, well, was it really just a session? With Vinny? Mm. Well, you know, to, to be honest, I mean, I liked working with Vinny and I liked his guitar playing. But personally speaking, Vinny was kind of too ephemeral for me to feel much of a bond with, you know? It's like working with a, a, an elf or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, he was this little, this, this strange little character, you know, and he, he was not, he was not gregarious, you know. I, I can be gregarious and telling jokes and hey, and he was a little bit like, whoa, you know. So, I mean, I like, I enjoyed the work, and I enjoyed going back and forth to England and, and playing. Also, when we played at that Riverside Studios there in, in London, I mean, that was all great. It was always a great trip. It was great also to get out of Brussels for a while. It was great to go to England. I mean, unlike anybody I know, I actually like England. I like to go there. I mean, I like to go to London. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I like England as for being England, you know, but I also like the fact that everybody speaks my language, for Christ's sake. I mean, it gets really boring after almost 50 years 
to know if you shout something on the street, maybe only 3% of the people are going to know what you're shouting about. You know, I can go out and say, ah, my dick's on fire. Hell, hell. Nobody's going to know what the hell I'm saying, you know, in Greece or in Brussels. Or, of course, Brussels has changed, you know. When we first got to Brussels, nobody spoke English. Nobody, you know, except for and the people that did speak English were young and they didn't count. I mean, people in any kind of position of power from like a taxi driver to a bank clerk to a post clerk or a cop didn't speak a fucking word of English, you know? And so it was, it was very difficult, you know? And we had trouble with that all up and down the line. I mean, we'd, we'd get in a taxi and the guy would say, okay, where are you going? We said, numero quatre, Rue Mark. We say, Rue Mark. He say, quoi? We say, Rue Mark. say, quoi? Oh, you know, why didn't you say so and take us there? But, you know, but that's one thing I actually like about England. It's just my whole, my culture is kind of derived from English culture in its way. Last time I went to Brussels, I went and had a beer in my favorite bar. And um, I was trying to be clever and I asked for a wheat beer. And I meant a wheat beer, like a German wheat beer, but they thought I'd ordered eight beers. So, oh, uh, wheat. <laughs> but I think my, my language issue when I lived there was a bit difficult, different to yours, because you're right. I mean, it, it wasn't um, English wasn't something that was spoken that much. And I think that's why I got the job at Crepe School, because it was a, a skill that I had, if you can call it a skill, which not many others did. And it's certainly why I then went to work at Play It Again, Sam, for about four years, um, because uh, it was useful having someone doing the job I was doing who spoke English. But I think for me, it was quite limiting because I basically hung around with you and other expats who were either American or English or Irish. And there were quite a lot of people in Brussels who worked for the European Union or NATO or who were from families connected with that. But I spent most of my four or five years in Brussels just hanging out with people who spoke English. And I didn't have to interact with other people that much. And that was because I was lazy, but it was also very limiting as well. And it's probably one of the reasons that ultimately I only stayed for four or five years, which seemed like an eternity, because I didn't properly put down roots or really establish a, a proper, nourishing, meaningful social network there. Of course, we we had our little crew there in Brussels, you know, we and we would have like like family gatherings of various sorts. We'd have dinner at somebody's house. And there would be this whole crew there, and it'd be all the same people a lot of the time, you know. And they're also they all spoke English, you know, like the Tuxedo Moon crew, or you know, expanded beyond that, you know. It was it all tended to be the the, the same people, but I guess it's that way anywhere on like the art scene. I mean, that's the one thing about the Brussels scene. Uh I don't know. I don't know if people even realize 
I mean, there was, there was one moment when it seemed like the Brussels scene was poised to become something to really blossom forth, you know. I mean, Crepuscule had this kind of an empire in the center of Brussels. You know, they were working with a, with a record distribution company called Himalaya, right? And so they had taken over a building right in the center of Brussels. And on one floor was a record shop. The next floor was like a clothing designer. And the top floor was the record company. And in the attic was Tuxedo Moon rehearsal space, right? And over in the Grand Place, they had taken over a cafe called Interference. And like Hurrah in New York, it was one of the first places to feature videos. It's like a video wall. There were videos playing all the time and people came in because that was as hip as you could be, right? They come to Interference and they watch some videos and they sit there and drink and watch videos. And then there was a performance space upstairs where various people would come over from like England, America, what have you, and perform. So it was very buzzing there for a while, you know, in the center of Brussels, that sort of crepuscule hub was, was really something. Yeah, certainly when I first came to visit, that was what it was like. And I think by the time two years later, when I moved over, that was starting to tail off a bit. But it was still really exciting for me. I mean, I was only 21 years old. So an awful lot of what I was seeing and experiencing, I didn't really fully understand. Um, but like I say, it, it was a very formative experience for me. And it's it's why I've done what I've done for 40 years. Um, but I did fall out with, I had a big argument with Michelle. I think it was an argument about something to do with 23 skidoo i can't remember exactly what but i just walked out of the office i don't think it was the first time i'd done that um but it was the last time i did it and i just left and um, i got on a train the next day and went to amsterdam it must have been something that had already been arranged because william burroughs was visiting and i guess he must have been doing some some readings um so i got on the train and went to amsterdam and um, was received by Burroughs in his hotel along with a, a bunch of other sort of interesting people. So even though I just quit my job with no plan at all, it all seemed like it was all still incredibly exciting because I was off on the train to go and meet William Burroughs, who I'd already released an album by. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a really fascinating, formative time, and I'm so glad I did it. But Ultimately, I only stayed for about four or five years. I got to the age of 25, and I thought at that time that that was too old to be working in music. <laughs> I mean, that seems ridiculous to look back on, but I figured that, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I should move aside and not let younger people do it, but I really figured that it wasn't something that made sense for me to carry on doing. But I don't know. Is that what I said at the time? Or did you think there was some I don't other know what you said at the time? I don't know. I mean, I just know at one point you were there and then you were gone. You know, I didn't know exactly why you wanted to move along. But, you know, me, you know, I, I was, I, I became more and more of a hermit as, as time went by there in Brussels, you know, or in, this is something I think about a lot and something I wonder about. 
I mean, as as the the scene, it seemed to me the scene kind of started to decay. You kind of, you know, it had risen, and then for a while it was stimulating and and exciting, and and then as such things will go. You know, the ghost side guys moved elsewhere, or you know, the the crepuscule, you know, the the crepuscule megalith. Uh, dissolved and dissipated. I don't know. They ran out of cocaine. I don't know what happened, but uh, these the it, the scene kind of folded in upon itself. I mean, it's just not as much happening. And I personally, you know, I I liked being in Brussels. I liked being in Europe to a certain extent, but I I also had what I am now describe as kind of a pathological. Uh, a, a nostalgia that, that bordered on on pathology, you know. I missed America so desperately, you know, that it was a sickness, and it became it became part of a dog, a very deep and dark depression for me. Well, it's interesting you say that because I don't remember you being homesick for America. Well, I wouldn't admit it. I wouldn't admit that that uh, that I was anything but you know Bolivarier. That I was anything but you know, and French man, I was not Ernest Hemingway, you know, living in the, the life of the expatriate. But some of the songs that I wrote at that time, like a letter from home, right? If you know that song, uh, the original lyrics were were, oh, sometimes you miss some place. So much you want to lay down and die, and you know, and Stephen Kramer said, "God damn, that's dark." I said, "Well, maybe I should change it." And then when I think back on it, you know, I I missed my friends, I missed my my country. Really, do you think though that you're inventing a narrative that is a little distorted because? On your what I think is your signature album, which is yes. which I sold two copies of today, by the way, they will <laughs> that will be reflected in your next royalty statement. But there is there is a song on there called Birthday Song, which I think that was around in ninety, certainly around in nineteen eighty two, because Tuxedo Moon did it first, and that is a song which seems already very jaded about the Brussels experience. Well, that I, you know, I had been living in San Francisco, California, man, and we have been doing well. I mean, we were one of the top bands in San Francisco. You know, people thought of us in, in the same. We moved in all in like exalted circles in, in San Francisco, where it's not that easy to do. You know, uh, we had come up. And we were we were like on top, you know, we were like local royalty. And then Stevie and Peter were like, uh, this town sucks. You know, let's go, let's, let's go to New York. And they're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hate New York. It's cold. I mean, we're in California, man. I mean, the Beach Boys, I mean, you know, it's sunny. The people, people die to come live here. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Why do you want to leave? Uh, you know, it's too easy, said Stephen. 
you know, and that's why I thought, okay, my band is you know, moving, and I guess I better move with them, which is what I did, you know. But we got to we got to Europe, I mean, they, and and we got to Rotterdam. It came winter, and I had never knew I'm from Colorado, and you got you either got the scorching sun, or you have snow, and it doesn't rain, really. Every once in a while. And there I am in Rotterdam and it's winter and it's like zero degrees and it's raining. And and you know the sky is gray for weeks on end. And what the hell kind of place is this? What is this? Why do I want to be here? You know, and then by the time we got to Brussels, you know, it was sorry, it was winter. I mean, in the summer it was all right, Brussels, okay, not bad. Then came the winter, like, look at where we are, and I got no money, you know, and no prospect of getting any money, or I can't go anywhere. Uh, I mean, my life at that time, the difference between what Brussels means to me now and what it meant to me then is, is enormous. I mean, all of these people say, oh, do you ever go to that, that restaurant, the Grand Place, that place that has a nice carbonade, and then, well, you know, I've been there since 2006 when I actually had some money in my pocket to go to a restaurant. But the whole time I lived there, I didn't know any fucking restaurants. I mean, my wife would, would go buy a canned mackerel that cost 20 francs a can, it was like, you know, 30p. And she would make wonton with canned mackerel and feed four people with it. We didn't go to any fucking restaurant. We didn't have any money. I mean, Michael Belfer, the one of the guitar players from Tuxedo Moon, woke up one morning and there's nothing to eat in his house except cornstarch. And so he made cornstarch soup. (laughs) He put it in some water with some salt and that he ate that because he didn't have any money. Well, I, I seem to remember now you mention it that I did use your house as a restaurant quite a lot. <laughs> well, you know, it's because JJ was a, was really a good survival cook. She could make a meal out of it out of like nothing, you know. And so we would go to Aldi, and Aldi would have like a special on chicken wings, and you'd get like you know thirty chicken wings for two hundred francs or something. And so we'd buy a big mess of chicken wings and and bacon in the oven and we invite everybody over to eat, you know, because then we had food. Because JJ was good at this kind of survival cuisine. No, that's absolutely true. And I mean, you're talking about when the group moved over from San Francisco to, to Brussels via shortish periods in New York and Rotterdam. So you, you, I think you were in Brussels 1981, I guess, is when you actually arrived there. And prior to that, so you, you'd done a couple of albums on the Residence label. Um, and then there was a, a good licensing deal for some things in England. And then you came to Brussels and it, it, it became, you were associated with Crepuscule, but also releasing different records on different labels. And I mean, my perception at the time was that Tuxedo Moon were going to be like the Velvet Underground in years to come. It was this sort of 
I mean, there might not have been an Andy Warhol in the background, but it was this interesting, daring avant-garde group that also had some good tunes. And there happened to be someone playing a violin in there as well, which is an oh, yeah. character. But I wonder if it, one of the reasons why Tuxedo Moon um, isn't perhaps as renowned now as the Velvet Underground is that it was all a bit too complicated and a bit difficult uh, and that things were made more difficult than they needed to be and obstacles were put in place that perhaps didn't really need to be there within the group. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I call it shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, we get into a position where it looked like, okay, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on in. And, you know, it would get, it would get uh, sabotaged. You know, because in in the in the opinion of certain members of the band, you know, uh, success is like a betrayal of your ideals. You know, to succeed in a music business means you're you're a lesser artist. I mean, the true mark of an artist is to die poor in the gutter. You know, I mean, actually, there's an interesting. I mean, it seems obvious enough. But in that, that Moon Age Daydream film, there's a quote from Bowie, and they say, well, what do you tell people that, you know, say you sold out because of this last dance? And he said, you know, poverty is no mark of artistic genius. So, you know, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you a great artist because you're poor. He said, you know, like some of the greatest artists in history were financial successes. But you know, there was always that in the tuxedo. There was this, you know, that that continues. And of course, that's a that's a, a bitter taste in really, you know, all therapy and meditation have helped me deal with it, but it, it's always there. Well, I guess in 1982-ish, there was a sort of a, a fork in the road. And I think one of the projects that was being dangled was was doing an album with Crepuscule that then might well be licensed through Island Records, which would have certainly given it a promotional and distribution heft that it wouldn't have had. But I think there would have been an expectation there to make a record that had some um, definite commercial potential in it. Um, but what the band did, in fact, is not do that, but decamp to Italy to perform an opera without words <laughs> in Italy, which um, is eventually made a great album, but probably wasn't the most commercial route to take. Um, I don't know. Did that seem, was that a watershed for you? Is that one of the reasons why you left the group for a while? But that, that's the reason. That is absolutely the reason. You know, a, a one, I mean, at that time we had this big, ugly van that, that JJ had bought, this big, great beast. And, and Stephen and I were driving around Brussels discussing this this proposal we had from the shell. And, and you know, it was the only, the only thing on the horizon, right? There were no gigs, there were no tour, there was no other record. This was the next uh, the next project we were being offered, 
And I, you know, and also there was a sum of money. I don't know what it was, $50,000 or something like that. That's it. Let's do it. You know, let's go for it. And in my mind, I say, if this motherfucker turns down this, this gig, I am gone. You know, I'm gone. Because, you know, but I could not abide. And I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, go off on Stephen, which I have a tendency to want to do. But, I mean, I, I, what did I see? I don't know, some movie the other night, TV show, and some guy said, oh, money, money means nothing to me. And the other person replied, people that say that are people that have always had money. People that tend to say, oh, money has no meaning. I mean, I'm from fucking poor Mexican people, you know. The fact that I am where I am is due to my own ability and my, my own, you know, tenacity. That's absolutely right. I mean, you, you've, you've not got where you are, having always made a living from being a musician for the last, probably getting on for 50 years. It's always been completely on your own terms and your own talent. And I mean, it's not been an easy ride, uh, all the time, but it's absolutely down to to you and you know you alone, you know, with Tuxedo Moon as well. But I mean, that's you're one of the. I mean, I'm still running. I, I took over stewardship of Crepuscule ten or so years ago, and it's been an honor and a privilege to continue to release uh, records by you. But also, not many of those original people are, are sort of match fit enough to continue making really good records you are you do the soundtracks you do the song-based records sometimes i think you write too much music but nevertheless it still <laughs> it still floods out of you um but a lot of people can't really do that anymore and and that's become a little bit of a problem for me because um you know it's a smaller pool of people who can make a record i mean i don't want to release hobby records by people that, that sort of sound a bit like half-baked demos. Thankfully, you're one of the people who can still make great records. Um, but I think, I suppose, thinking more about that island fork in the road, it's perhaps ironic that Tuxedo Moon's best-known song now is In a Manner of Speaking, which wasn't written by you or Stephen. It was written by Winston Tong, who wasn't so much of a songwriter but he wrote that very very simple song that has a a real universal message and is very easy for people to understand all around the world and millions of people know it um how strange well uh, Stephen uh, Winston is a good lyricist I mean this is something I came to appreciate because when Tuxedo Moonlight reformed in 2000 I ended up singing a lot of Winston songs in the live show, and I, I sang again, for instance, and I gave my own vocal treatment. And I began to appreciate Winston as a lyricist. I mean, he, he was quite a poet. He was quite, you know, quite a talented lyricist. And, and I mean, I when we went back to San Francisco in 2005, uh, and, you know, Mark financed it, which seems an impossible dream now for a record company to pay for you to go 
live in San Francisco for, for three weeks, you know. A lot of the reason I wanted to do that, and I proposed it to Stephen, was to work with Winston, you know, to like dig him up, get him to write some songs. And so we were there for the whole time we were there, we were meeting every day in this, this rehearsal studio. And we invited Winston along and he just he didn't come. He didn't come, he didn't come, he didn't come. And finally, on the last day before we left, before we went and came back to Europe, he showed up at the rehearsal. And so, okay, we set up a microphone for him and a chair. And he sat down in the chair and the microphone over him like that. And he sat there three hours, didn't say a word. And then at one point, just before we finished, he looked up at the microphone and went, oh, <laughs> that was it. That was the extent of Winston's contribution to that session, you know. Sounds like a, a Sid Barrett scenario. You mentioned Mark there. That's Mark Hollander of Cram Discs. And I think it's only fair to say that we're talking about Crepuscule and Tuxedo Moon as if that was, you know, that was the main game in town. But Mark Hollander and Cram Discs have released many subsequent Tuxedo Moon records and have done it very, very well and have stood by the band for 35 years now. So I have to extend a huge amount of respect and admiration and credit to Mark and Crammed. And Crammed was always the other really interesting, well-dressed, international-looking indie label uh, in Brussels. And what's more, they're still there. They're still doing it. Um, whereas Crepuscules had a more patchy career <laughs> over the last 40 years. Well, I mean, Mark, you know, Aksak Mabul has a, has a new life. Is yeah. bad, you know, and there they it's well deserved. I mean, that's the thing. He, he Mark is a, is a really excellent musician, you know, a really brilliant musician, and he he put his own musicianship, you know, on the back burner for years to run that record label, you know, and he never made music. He made maybe played piano at home, and finally he just said. You know, I want to play music again. And so they started doing their bands again. And it's been it's been doing really well. It's been getting reviewed and you know, pitched for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean I've nothing but respect for Mark. I didn't I didn't get on with him very well when I lived in Brussels at the time because I was a stupid, young, arrogant idiot. But um I hopefully I've you know made my peace with him in subsequent years and I always enjoy seeing him when I do see him. I like I like him. I mean, he's, he's all of these people. You know, they're old friends by now. Even including Jean Piero and his crew in Italy. I mean, they're they're like family. Even though they haven't found a gig for me for like two years, you know, they kind of dried up. You know, as if they were ever so fertile to begin with. But, uh, yeah. So there we go. I mean, I have these questions here about the current state of things. I mean, I don't know how interesting that is. I mean, I have more fun talking about the past, like most old people. You sent me three questions, which were basically about what's 
how do you find running a record label? Um, what's the current shape of the music business? What's been the effect of Brexit? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd answer all of those really in one answer. Um, I mean, I think the Brexit thing, I mean, it's a national disaster, but I don't think it impacts hugely for me anyway, partly because so much of music and music selling now is digital and there aren't any borders involved in that at all. Um, so I don't think that Brexit's really affected us that much. I think the general economy um, has affected things more. But I think for me, the the issues and problems I have with running a label these days is that this is going to sound very, very uh, negative, but I think there are too many people uh, making and releasing too much music on too many labels over too many different platforms. And it's there's just too much for everybody to absorb. It's made music too commonplace and it's kind of devalued it. Um, there are ways around that. You know, you can release nice deluxe boxed editions of things, which are sort of like hardback publishing. That can work quite well. Um, but I think music was probably more valued and more precious to people when there was less of it. And you had to go and find it. It was harder to find it. And it was like secret knowledge. And that was part of the process of investing in it. Um, I think for me, that's taken a lot of the fun out of it. Um, and now I just see myself not as someone who's running an active label and putting out new records as well as catalogue. Um, at the moment, I'm really just keeping core catalogue in print and curating that catalogue because it's become, it's not difficult to put a new record out by someone, but it's very difficult for it to be anything other than, uh, frankly, a waste of time because it just doesn't get noticed. Few people hear it because there's just so much other noise in the background. It rather like television now. There are so many uh, channels and networks making so much content. You can't possibly keep up with all of it. And, you know, not all of it's going to be high quality. As I said, I mean, I, I like curating high-end editions of things. So doing a nice multi-disc vinyl set is good. We did a probably one of the things that I think we've done best and I was most happy to do a couple of years ago, just at the beginning of lockdown. We did a 40th anniversary edition of From Brussels with Love, which was the, the first Crepuscule release, this amazing international cassette magazine with lots of factory artists lots of minimalist musicians um interviews on it and we did a fantastic earbook edition of that so it was like a 80 90 page hardback book with two cds uh, it was a lovely thing to do um, and that i really enjoyed but it's incredibly time consuming coming up with projects like that now and I suppose going back to the, the Brexit issue, it did make me think I probably need to reevaluate where my career is going because it might get a bit tricky from now on um, running a label full time. So that did provoke me to go back to my old job, which was being a lawyer. Um, and that's what I pretty much do full time now. And running the labels is just a hobby. I don't draw any salary from it. Um, so I have less time to do things now than I did before.
but I've also just decided to focus in on what works and those core catalog items that I really need to keep in print in lots of different formats because that's what they deserve so I've kind of wound down a bit and I touched on it before as well I don't want to put out mediocre records by people that would tarnish the the, the brand names for Crepuscule and Factory so um, I've yeah I've kind of circled the wagons a little bit but not really for commercial reasons I'd like to think it's more for creative and cultural reasons I don't know you may say to me that sounds like bullshit I'd appreciate appreciate your view on that oh well I mean what I think about the state of the music business now is maybe it's analogous to actually the printing press hmm. I mean when 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 the Gutenberg Gutenberg you know had had the monopoly you know he, he they invented the technology and few people had it you know and so any printed book you know would would have enormous attention say look a book you know no man write this book it's made by a machine <laughs> you know but then several hundred years later you, you know the world is flooded with printed garbage on the phone and so you know it's not unique anymore and so you know when when re musical recording of music, you know, high quality recording of music was new, when like Les Paul is inventing multi-track recording, the first products thereof are going to be held in enormous, you know, regard. People are going to say, wow, and look what the Beatles did. They did 24 tracks of audio, and it's amazing. And now... You know, some dope in his basement can have 50 tracks of, of his own voice easily enough. And that's not to say that it's inferior what he does. It's just that the, the technology that allowed a few people to get rich while it was still new has become so widespread that it's no longer possible to, to become, you know, massively wealthy off of this and so music reverts to where it always was in the past and so you know you're going to be playing in a bouzouki band in a taverna earning your living that way rather than having like a private jet to fly you around you know rather than being like a demigod I mean, you're, you're still gonna you're gonna make music the way it always used to be made, and it's going to be based upon your your ability to do it. I think, I think the days of the rock star are kind of over. I I mean, I still listen to some new music. I mean, there are current artists that I really like. But what about you, Blaine? I mean, who who do you rate? Who's who's making music at the moment, old or new? Uh. Well, you know, I surprised myself that I actually liked St. Vincent. I, I, because I like her guitar playing. I mean, I was listening to one of her songs, and it, you know, kind of poppy and some kind of Gaga-esque. And then comes the guitar solo. I said, "Wow, how did she do that?" And so I, I, I investigated it, and some of the stuff on the Wounds and Blessings is is St. Vincent inspired. You know, to to do this kind of synthesizer distortion of guitars, these these like wild solos on guitar or violin, you know, 
I like her. I like a few of the bands I've seen around. You know, some of them tend to be good. I don't know. It's, it, it's strange what, what, you know, makes it through the front door of my ear. <laughs> I mean, it depends on, on who it is. I mean, what, what is the name? Oh, is this, are they Scottish? A band called the Sound Carriers? News to me. Oh, they, they do this, this, they do this kind of 60s sound music. It sounds like music from like French films, like, you know, and it, it has that, 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 that strange kind of, you know, European and continental soundtrack quality to it. And I like some of that stuff and I aspire to that stuff. And, and I aspire to that kind of sound, this kind of twangy guitars and you know, big orchestras. And, you know, I, I like it lately. But Do you think there's a danger, though, with music of that type, that it's an exercise in style rather than something that's, I don't know, perhaps at a, at a higher level, sounding a bit snobby? Well, you know, well, I mean, what I'm doing now in my my work, I mean, it's all about style. I mean, I want to I want to learn how to emulate the production styles and techniques and arrangements of all kinds of different music that I've heard in the past. And you know, I, I say, how do they, how do they do that? How do they get that sound? I mean, the more the more I learn about recording myself i mean the more i learned about digital audio the the you know the more i want to just be able to be taken down this whatever path the the, the song leads me you know that's another thing i mean I'll, I'll start working and you know things start to appear you know things start to appear in the soup Right, and they become a, a, a path to follow, and I end up doing all kinds of different things as a result. And I want to know how to do it. I mean, to a certain extent, it also has a lot in common with parody. I mean, this is one reason I'm a big fan of Neil Innes, and I'm also a big fan of the Mighty Boosh. <laughs> this, this guy Julian, what's his name? The the other guy, not Noel Fielding. Julian, yeah. no, not the the gothy dude, the other one. Yeah, Julian Barrett. Julian Barrett, yeah, he is. The, he writes the songs, and he's a guitar player, like a fusion jazz guy. But he is so good at approximating all these different styles of music. I mean, they're you know they got this funk song or whatever. It's a we got the funk, and it's so good, you know. And that's why I like him, and that's why I like Neil Innes. I like well-executed parody you know it's really interesting you say that because for me any almost any comedic element um in music completely bursts the bubble for me and takes me right out of the music and i can't appreciate it save as comedy but a couple of weeks ago i went to see a group called eels who i've got quite a lot of albums by but I hadn't seen them before. And the group is really just one guy, a guy called Mark Everett, who's American, been around for quite a while now. And, I mean, he is a very interesting songwriter and a very charismatic guy. A lot of it's quite down and depressing, but he also has 
an enormous amount of irony and humor and intelligence in the music. And it just, for me, keeps on the right line of, of not going into it being comedic. So I really, really appreciate him. But usually the kind of stuff you're talking about, um, I might appreciate it, but I don't appreciate it as music. It's some sort of other form of entertainment. If you're talking about- well, What I appreciate it is the skill of the parody. I mean, a lot of my stuff borders, you know, it's, it's ironic, but it, it stops short of being comic, you know? Because it's not made for for comic effect feelings. I mean, there's, there's a kind of very extremely dry humor and irony, you know. And that's that's something I've always just really admired and loved. You know, you can hear that. You can hear the truth in my work with Tuxedo Moore, like holiday for flying women and things like that. Yeah, or all kind of parody in its way or appropriation. You know, just. And learning how to do, you know, it's like applying different colors to, you know, to, to having a, a large palette, you know. And where else was I going to say, I forgot, doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I think we've gone, oh, let me just have a look. I think we've gone through all the questions you sent me in advance that I was prepared to answer. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, is there part of, part of this, session is is there a, a piece of music involved is that something yeah. i get to hear am i expected to pass comments stroke judgment on that what's what's the... well every every conversation inspires a, a song so it could be with lyrics it could be without uh it's well, completely up, up to blame well i mean i was working on a piece of music today i mean maybe that would be it i mean maybe i'll write lyrics that explore the, the this idea of you know nostalgia and the past and, and you know maybe that would be a good a good way to, to use this i mean i don't i don't necessarily want to write a song but, oh crepuscule no, I think, I think I think James should be, uh, you know, figure prominently in the lyrics. Yeah, no, okay. James, <laughs> James, <laughs> say hello to these guys. Look at them. He, he, wants to, he wants to walk on the keyboard. Sometime, I think he knows how to stop music. I mean, sometimes if I'm doing something that he doesn't, appreciate illegal you know especially when i do like guitar solos <laughs> he'll walk up here and put his foot on the space bar and he stops it all <laughs> do i do i get to direct or, or shape the piece of music at all do i get to say you can do this, but you can't do that. You've got to do this. You can't uh, play that. Or is it, uh, am I completely extraneous in that regard? Mm, I think you, you're inspired. Your work stops now, usually. Otherwise, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And uh, huh. ah, well, whatever I do, whatever I do, I will if, if, Blaine is, if Blaine is open to it, then, of course. Uh, I mean, I'll send it over for, you, for your editorial comment. You know. Yeah. He isn't open to that. Uh, back in the 80s, Blaine did an album called Book of Hours. And for about 
an hour, I was supposed to be the producer. And uh, I didn't last very long in the studio, did I, Blaine? <laughs> I remember you You were telling me, I remember in particular, you were telling me what you thought the drum pattern should be. And she said, here it should go dun dun instead of dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do dun dun. But, I, don't, I don't remember that, but I do remember, I think it probably was the point of my dismissal from the studio. I think you did say one of the reasons why this wasn't going to work is I think you said, you listen to Fleetwood Mac. Oh, <laughs> now I do. Now I do. Now I put Fleetwood Mac on my phone and listen to a one-year-old commuting on the bus. God help me. And I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate the production value you know it's strange it's strange that i don't know how i ended up there speaking of book of hours i i i don't know what i was looking for oh yeah this guy hector you know hector the portuguese dude he's writing something about how he thought book of hours was a masterpiece and he liked santos and i'm trying to find the name of the, the other guy that besides Yvonne Georgia, what was that guy's name? Ian Define. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was trying to find his name, and I ended up finding a review of the record by this guy, Ned Raggett. Yeah. The all music guy. He did not like that record at all. And, you know, he's going on about it or what he thought was a weak point, you know, and and how he thought that that, that zombie buff song was he called it yup funk yuppie funk and then he didn't he didn't like that record very much at all but that's because he he knows that i i was sacked as producer i know ned so <laughs> maybe there was a conversation before he penned that read no there wasn't i i'm i'm lying of course no but i mean it made me want to go back and listen to it and think about it and listen to some of those other things also listen to Bisantio, you know, I like, know he didn't like Bisantio either. He thought it was weak and maybe it was. But the thing that obsessed me at that time and continued to do so was the process of making it, you know, because I was, I was making those records with this uh, sequencer technology that was available at the time. And I was completely absorbed in that sequencer more more than you know they say why don't you just play that on the guitar say but i want to program it <laughs> I want it's so much fun and i sit there and i wouldn't even program in real time i was i was programming you know notation you know step time i'm going to be a bit controversial here though blade and if i if i um pick up night air again which i would say is your signature album that wasn't that, that wasn't made with a sequencer. That was made with a Michael Belfer. And then well, it, that's because yeah, there was a whole crew of musicians on that, and it made me think back about it. I mean, I don't know. That was that was also probably part of my my retreating inside myself and like my my hermitage. You know, my I mean, Night Air came at a very special time. In the way I was very kind of lucid. You know, right after I left. Tuxedo Moon, even though 
those other assholes are on that record all over the place. I mean, Steven's there, and it was pretty much just an offshoot of Tuxedo Moon night air. I mean, and Belfer came over to play with Tuxedo Moon, and you know, Steven wouldn't have him, so I, I took him on. You know. I think also, though, one, one other aspect of that record is, I might be wrong, but it's your only solo album that has a producer. Yes. I mean, is that, I mean, what's your view on that? Do you do you find that a process you you wouldn't want to ever engage in again, or was it simply a question of finances or what? It, it's a question of, um, of uh, happenstance, really. I mean... I don't, I mean, I was not making financial decisions at that time, you know. It's just that, you know, I, I became friendly with Gareth. This is Gareth Jones, who's famous yeah. for Depeche Mode and John Fox and lots of things, I think. It's because, you know, John Fox introduced us to, to Gareth. This is pre-Depeche Mode. John Fox, I mean, we, we had wanted to do Desire we wanted to have John Fox involved somehow, and that was the extent of his involvement was to, to introduce us to his engineer slash producer, which was, which was a good introduction. So Gareth put a spin on that record that I probably didn't appreciate at the time in my arrogance and my, my youthful egotism. You know, I thought I did it all, but Gareth had these, these amazing ideas to give it a good sound. And of course, Michael's input, you know, it, it cannot be cannot be underestimated either. I mean, Michael had enormous input on that record, you know. It's a pity. I mean, I did get to talk to him like a week before he died, you know. And then Night Air was a kind of a point of contention between us. Michael, you know, I credited you with those songs on the record cover. I never tried to do it anyway. He said, I don't want to open that can of worms. And so we talked about other stuff. We talked about guitars. And then a week later, he was dead. Mm. So, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that is what gives that record its, its, you know, its quality. Because, you know, then those other records I made over that time, yeah, I could have used these kind of guys. Also, not to underestimate the, the, the contribution of Ivan Boutier. You know, he was an amazing bass player. I mean, that guy, he played with everybody in Belgium. I mean, he's like the old man of the Belgian scene. I know he played with Arno and all those other people, too. And so his contribution was really enormous to that record also i heard i heard the recording the live recording before the live record the one we did at the bataclan man man i wish we would have made that the live record because that's fucking amazing that's great i have a cassette recording of that that i will post it on patreon you know what a proper recording or like a bootleggy thing well, it's bootleggy. It's a cassette. Mm. And so, you know, I had to had it tweak it to a certain extent, but it's not bad. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I missed having a band of that caliber, you know, 
Also, of course, I was fucked up. I was on drugs. And that's there's no question about that, you know. I was I was a victim of my own disease. I was lost in my my addictions, you know. But it didn't stop you being productive. I mean, you were still making records, you were still touring and playing live a lot. Yes. But you know, I was I was deluded. I mean, you know, I I was like a lot of drug addicts, you know, I didn't know which way it's up. I mean, thankfully, I've come through that, and my mind is more or less intact, you know. I managed to get through all of that shit and and leave it behind me, you know. Well, it's kind of ironic because, I mean, we've probably had this conversation before, but when I was living in Brussels, um, certainly towards the end, so this would have been sort of 1991, um actually no maybe before that but anyway um if if i'd had to have bets with people uh, about who would die out of these uh, (laughs) musicians in brussels it would have been blame um and you know people didn't think you were going to make old bones you'd already you know walked under a car in amsterdam and um you know that there were some issues and i think it came as an astonishing surprise but a brilliant one that after you moved to athens you you got not just clean and sober but someone who does yoga someone who rides around on bikes someone who um you know is is still making lots of very good music and you know is completely compass mentis and it, it's it's fantastic that you've done that. Well, you know, I, I came to my senses and I, you know, I owe a lot of that to the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I, you know, I, I that truly saved my life. You know, I I, I won't hear a, a word against AA. It's something that works. You know, from people that have really are sincere, you know, it, it, it initiates a process of self-examination that can, that can help you come out of it or the, the kind of zombie trance that you're in, like addiction that puts you in. Was that something you started engaging in in Brussels, or was that a Greek thing? I started do. I started going to AA. In like 1981, I mean, I I, I went and it, it didn't work. You know, I went and, and kept going back. And like at the time I did Night Air, I had been sober for a while, you know, because I had been going anyway. And then, you know, I, 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 I relapsed, you know, and then I would go back. And, and, and finally, it was only finally when I got here, I started going to AA also just just to, because I was so lonely after JJ died. I mean, I just needed a group of people that I could talk to in my language, and then it also saved my life here. I mean, it gave me a, a foothold, taught me how to get around in the city, and also helped me, you know, to to regain my my agency in the world, you know. So yeah, the AA was same way. I run into other musicians, and you know, I have like AA buddies. 
know, you can kind of smell them across the room. You know, guys sitting in front of them, the club soda, you know, <laughs> in, 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 in a dressing room full of inebriates. One guy sitting there, though. So are would you, would you have changed? You, would you have changed anything over the last? In terms of your career, would you have changed anything over the last 40, 45 years? Well, probably that. I wish that I had, I had got off drugs sooner. That's all. I mean, it fucked me up good. You know, they, they, like one of the, around the time I made that live record, I mean, that was the kind of the beginning of my, my downfall. You know, up to that point. Things were going pretty well in my solo career, but I was uh, that that night I was really stoned. I kind of blew it, and I would change that. Well, it, but it, it well, it, but that's just <laughs> that's kind of wrong because it's actually a very good live album. But it what, is good. It is good, but but I I get the feeling that everybody I was working with lost faith in me. Right. You know that's the thing. You know, if we were if we had continued at a kind of you know accelerated pace, it might have been another story. I mean, it's interesting you 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 say that's your only regret because I was really hoping you were going to say you not producing Book of Hours, but <laughs> you didn't throw that in. I'm very disappointed, Blaine. That's a dagger to the heart of our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think probably that would be a cause for rejoicing that I didn't manage to 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 wreck that album with a bunch of not even half baked ideas. <laughs> well, I know you you didn't you didn't and you're not particularly in love with Stefan Kramer, is me. I don't remember that. You might be right, but I don't remember that. Oh, um, you didn't you thought his contributions were kind of banal. I think maybe it's just after what Gareth did. You know, that this guy was kind of, kind of, you know, vanilla. He's kind of an ordinary rock and roll. I still have too high standards. But, I mean, that's the only time I've ever tried to involve myself in anybody's recording sessions. Um, I've never, ever been into the studio with anybody else. I just don't see that as my role or something I would have any contribution to make at all. So... I just thought I'd throw that in in case people think that I try and try and influence everybody's records. I absolutely don't do that. But that's why I think I've always really mainly done a reissue label because I like to judge in retrospect what is good and, and what suits my um, you know, worldview of music and my niche labels rather than trying to commission too much new music, which can can go in a direction you didn't expect. Well, it's, it's been good to have you over the course of all his time as a kind of an editor or as, as you know, somebody to provide me some kind of insight into what I'm doing, you know. I mean, that's, that's useful, I mean, especially if you work alone, you know, you've got nobody else to tell you, you know. My wife can't tell me much about these things. You know, you like that, yeah, no. <laughs> she tells me some she makes some suggestions you know it's good to have like an editor it's good the next record coming out what what is the next record coming out 
no, no, we're not talking about that because it's coming out on another label. So uh, we're just going to move rapidly on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff. Now let's hear about the new record. It's on an Italian label, isn't it, Blake? Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Why well, you want to look at it? You've seen it. I thought the cover art looked really nice, actually. Yeah, this my wife did it. Here, wait a second. I have my merchandise box over here. This is the hard sell part of mm -hmm. the box. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a link link flashes up on the screen now. Well. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's lovely. I look forward to receiving one of those. In yeah, well, now, now I have some time. Like, while I've been working in the theater, I just haven't been able to do anything else. You know, the theater is, is really, it, it just absorbs all the time. And, you know, I'm 70 fucking years old. I don't have that much energy. I have enough energy to do one big thing every day. And, you know, that's about it. And so the theater just took home everything, all of my bandwidth, you know, now I'm finished. It's five months. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's five months of, of commitment. To Do you think one of the reasons that you're, you've carved a niche doing soundtrack music, I suppose music that's commissions really, because <laughs> we've done two albums that are called commissions, is that you're able and you appreciate the, uh, the benefit of someone that someone can say, can you do this project and it needs to be delivered by this date, blah, blah, blah. And you will do that rather than it uh, becoming a tortuous process that's beset with delays. Well, yeah, the, you know, the, the fact that I've basically taught myself digital music production, you know, uh, I can, I can deliver and I can, I can do a lot of other kind of uh, parallel jobs you know i can do the, the the voiceovers on the trailer for the piece and things like that i can do all of that work i can edit it i can you know play it i mean i'm worried about all that stuff also of course since i've lived here i mean I've, I've had a lot of contacts in the theater world and a lot of the people that, that a lot of people that i work with you know 25 years ago when they were young, they're now like the lions of the, the great theater scene. You know, that were the, when I met them, they were young, get, just getting started. And now they're, you know, directing, you know, directing the national theater and shit like that. I mean, the guy I just worked with, he used to be a director of the national theater. He was somebody, he was running this theater that was like the alternative theater in 1999, you know, I met, met him then. So, I mean, that's given me the opportunity to do these kind of things. You know, it's a lot of work. I mean, this, this deal about being a, 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 a live musician who's also playing a part in the play, I, that's, that's kind of more work than I'd rather, rather not do yeah. that. It's too much fucking work, you know. Too much work. The last thing I did, I mean, I've never done this before. I I I played the guitar continuously for like 20 minutes at a time. I never did that. You know, I mean this song's like four minutes long. You don't play for 20 minutes because I, I did like environmental music on live guitar 
there was some pre-recorded stuff, but a lot of it was just kind of twangy, right cooter sounding stuff, which I enjoyed. I mean, it was really a lot of work. Anyway, that's why I haven't sent you this yet. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to it. It will be added to my very long shelf of Blaine and associated projects. Well, you see behind me all the CDs in that tower of song there, then that's all kind of minor tuxedo mobile. You know. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't look that big from here, so you need to pad it out a bit with some boxes. <laughs> uh, well, there's also boxes in there, boxes full of stuff <laughs> all over the damn place. Oh, there, you know, I've got my merch behind me, and all those too. Well, I, I guess we're, then this is probably it, right? Yeah, it's been great, guys, really. Just to hear you guys reminisce, and I, I feel like I visited Brussels a few times, and uh, I spent a lot of time there as well, but to hear about that evocative time was really, uh, really special. Well, I hope it wasn't too indulgent. I mean, I don't know how uh, long we've been talking, but the last time I did something vaguely like this was in January. No, February. And uh, beside me on the stage was like a timer clock counting down to 45 <laughs> minutes. And I kept looking at it and it was really distracting because I was thinking, well, I've got to try and cram this point, that point, that point in, and this digital clock's just ticking down and then people are going off on funny tangents. So it's been really nice just to be able to have a nice freewheeling, um, improvised conversation and to actually know that I do know what I'm talking about in this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, You're an expert. Because I was there. Uh, but I've really, really enjoyed it. And hopefully there's been a bit of talk about wider things rather than just two old geeks talking about 40 years ago <laughs> in Brussels. Yeah, yeah we launched into a song. Yes. So anyway, I will, I will, I may just, I may just take the, the current thread that I'm working on and use it to to this end. I mean, I, I recorded the uh, guitar part just before we started this, so we'll see where it goes. It's going to need some lyrics, and so I'll write some lyrics and see how I... Yeah, we have a... Can I give you a title? And you could take this uh, away. You could call it Interferences, and it could either be something to do with the cafe bar that Crepuscule ran in Brussels, or it could be with young idiots trying to interfere with the production of <laughs> well call it that i'm always i'm always in the market for a good title mm, that's a good title <laughs> you know i mean well there's another somebody for another day but i have these these phrase generators and these word generators that i use a lot in writing my lyrics but you know they are they are qualitatively different from the AI. I mean, I've tried some of these these chatbots and tried to tweak them to get the kind of results that I like, which is kind of this James Joyceian Burroughs, uh, and they won't do it. They're 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 too linear. They're too mundane. I mean, they're they're taking their they're, they're taking their cue from things that exist already online, and they're they're. Mm very prosaic they're not magical at all yet i mean they're not like the kind of results you get from these kind of cut up and these kind of techniques these kind of bizarre juxtaposition that is my i'll tell you what does 
really interesting um, series of three words, though. There's uh, something we use. I'm a very keen runner, and I do a lot of mapping of runs, and you have to give out locations to people. And there's a thing called what three words, which people use to identify very precise locations. It comes down to about two or three square meters. So if you use that app, you can just pick any location. It can just be a little bit of sidewalk and it will come up with three words that's exclusive oh, yeah. to that location. And some of those combinations of words you get from what three words are really funny and really interesting. So you might want to check that out. I'll check it out. I mean, I, I do have a you know a lot of a lot of apps and programs, and you know they're supposed to do that. I mean, what I would love to have is whatever it was that Bowie used. Bowie had his <laughs> own he had his own software that was written to provide him this kind of mm -hmm. cut up stuff, and he didn't share that with anybody. Oh, really? Really? Then he had his own, you know, word jumble. You know, world, world Tumblr. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, he did that all the time. You listen to his stuff, and you know how that, you know the results of that. You know that almost every song he wrote in his last 20 years in his life was derived from, like, cut-up techniques. You know? All right. Anyway. Well, I've really enjoyed this. It's fantastic. Thank you, Blaine. Thank you, Jack. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully, I don't know if this you just use all of this or edit out, you know, the, the bits that aren't so exciting, but um, I look, well, I don't know if I will listen to it back, but it's been really, really fantastic. <laughs> well, guys, I'll do I'll do what I did already with some Tuxedo Wound interviews and I'll put them in a song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, look, thank you. It's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. Thank you. Really, really good. Real pleasure, yeah, guys. We'll talk again. Then. Very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Blaine. Thank you, Jack. Take care. Bye-bye, okay. everybody. Bye-bye. Voilà la vie Avec un fleuve enterré qui coule sous les pavés, ciel des plombs, en dessus de la place dorée, Bruxelles des années 80, dans la vidéo bar branchée. Stars inconnues Un long manteau noir
Sans un sou 